Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Lisa Sherman to the podcast. Lisa is a licensed acupuncturist with a strong interest in functional medicine and a background in molecular biology research. She believes in integrating the precision of Western science with the tradition of Eastern medicine to provide effective, patient-centered care. As a yoga teacher and longtime practitioner of Tai Chi and Qigong, she enthusiastically promotes the benefits of mindful movement practices for health maintenance. She's also an authorized meditation teacher via Buddhist Geeks. Lisa has been providing multimodality support to hypermobile patients for the past five years and is excited to bring what she has learned to the wider community of Bindi people. So Lisa, welcome to the podcast and as always, I'm so glad to have you here. Yeah, so good to see you, Libby. So let's start out by just having you tell listeners a little bit about yourself, a little bit around, and what led you to your work with people who have hypermobility syndromes. Yes, well, I started off my career life as a scientist and went through a laboratory science career and then gave up halfway through a PhD to become a web designer. And then web design was very bad for my body. And after about seven years of doing that, I got a sore back and I got into yoga and Tai Chi. And then I decided I didn't want to sit at a desk for the rest of my life. And so I went back to acupuncture school. And so I qualified in London, University of Westminster in 2005. And then by a set of circumstances, arrived in the USA about 10 years ago, got in, back into practice here. And, and by that stage, I'd been in practice long enough to see some kinds of patterns in the kinds of patients that were coming in. I thought of them as my sort of complex chronic people. And these would be people that would come in with literally pages of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And they would have often a chronic pain or chronic fatigue type presentation, but then they'd have plus, plus, plus type symptoms. And often these were gut symptoms, or hormone issues, menstrual issues, they'd have headaches, they'd have skin issues, mood issues, autoimmune issues. So just a very long list of complex constellation of issues. I was just always trying to understand what it was about this diverse but somehow grouped together bunch of clients. And the scientist in me was like, what is going on here? The Chinese medicine practitioner in me was trying to see the pattern. And then from a systems biology perspective, I was just always trying to think of what are the threads that are connecting these people? And how can I understand this pathology, these conditions, not as separate things, but try to understand what is tying them all, all together. So as often happens, I went off down some rabbit holes. Those rabbit holes led me to uh, histamine and to mast cells. And I began to understand those as common threads that link these conditions together. And I began to think of this trifecta 
of hypermobility issues, histamine issues, and dysautonomia issues as the trio of bendy, itchy, and dizzy. And so all of this stuff was coming together and I was trying to hold all the pieces in my mind to just help me understand. And what, what resolved out of that was just this very strong connection between people who have hypermobility issues and them showing up also with histamine issues, mast cell issues. Well, I love hearing about how this all came together for you. And certainly you're wondering down rabbit holes is part of what helped me understand all these issues as well. And I also really appreciate the very succinct descriptor of bendy, itchy, dizzy. That has been really helpful for me to orient around this, what they call the terrible trifecta that often shows up for people. Not all the people who have hypermobility will also have issues with mast cells and dysautonomia, but the overlap is so huge that I was really excited to bring you on to help explain some of these common immune system issues that impact people with hypermobility, in particular issues with mast cells. So can you give us a basic introduction to what are mast cells? What is their role in the immune system? Let's start there. So what are mast cells? Well, the first thing I would say is that they are old, like really old, they're ancient. Mast cells have been around for 500 million years and the mast cell predates the backbone as an evolutionary invention. They actually predate immune systems. They were some of the very first immune cells that ever developed in these very primitive animals that are kind of like sea squirts. So they are evolutionarily very ancient. They've been around for a long, long time. And then as happens, if you've been around for a long time, you get given a lot of jobs. So mast cells have a lot of things that they do and they play important roles in many aspects of normal body functioning. They have normal roles in the function of our blood systems and our airways. They're involved in bone growth. They're involved in injury healing. They're involved in the formation of new uh, blood vessels whenever we have injuries. And they also regulate the function of many other cells. They've got a lot of normal physiology functions. And then they're also a part of the disease process of different conditions. And the most well-known disease condition that they're involved in is, of course, allergies. And when we think of the function, the most important job that mast cells have is as our kind of immune border guards. And these are cells that are located along our frontiers. They patrol our frontiers where we meet the environment. And these are, can be thought of as our skins. And so our skin is clearly a place where we meet the environment. But then we also have skins inside us where the environment kind of comes in to meet the body, most obviously in the respiratory system. So air comes into the respiratory system and into the lungs, and that's where we meet the environment. And then in less obvious places in the sort of hollow organs of our body, including the GI tract, the skin of the GI tract, the lining of the GI tract is actually, even though it's inside us, is in contact with the outside world because we bring the food into the tube and the food stays into the tube until it turns into poop and it goes out the other end. Mm -hmm. So this, the skin of our GI tract, the lining of our GI tract is another one of these skins. 
and then our bladder and our uterus which also open uh, sort of to the outside world along the urethra and through the vagina are also these hollow organs that are sort of external facing and so these border guards patrol those external facing surfaces and they detect and respond to things that want to invade across those borders so uh, that could be allergens so in the respiratory tract allergens coming into the body mast cells are trying to stop those from coming in and get getting them out of that system and then pathogens so viruses bacteria those kinds of things stuff that shouldn't be inside us mast cells are trying to get it out of us that's their basic job is get this out of me where do they live you said they're kind of along mm-hmm. the skins like what part of the tissue do they hang out in they're in this epithelium of the tissue and then they also hang out underneath that so they're in the extracellular matrix of the connective okay. tissue and we'll learn that that's a big part of why they are so closely involved with uh, hypermobility um, and they hang out a lot around blood vessels and around nerve cells they're fine throughout the body but they cluster in these places close to where there are frontiers in the body mm-hmm. and then close to blood cells and close to nerve cells they're actually in the extracellular matrix and that's one of the reasons that they're very important in conditions of collagen yeah okay and so let's yeah. say a mast cell detects a pathogen an allergen what does it do (laughs) so mast cells are they're kind of like bags full of chemicals like water balloons or they're more like bags full of soup and the word mast actually means plump or well-fed the guy who discovered them paul ehrlich who was like a nobel winning immunologist back in the late 1800s he called them plump cells because they're these little bags full of chemistry full of chemicals and they have two broad classes of chemicals they have chemicals that are messengers that can take messages to other cells and they have chemicals that are weapons that can kill things so I sort of think as these things as being weapons of mass destruction <laughs> and that when the mass cell is triggered, the balloon explodes to release these weapons of mass destruction that can directly kill things or that can tell other cells to come to the place where the fight is happening and involve other cells in the war. And the most well known of these substances, they're called mediators, mass cell mediators, is histamine. And histamine is best known as having a starring role in allergic reactions. So if you ever have taken an antihistamine for allergies, you'll understand that histamine is involved in that process. But also there are other chemicals in the chemical soup that the mast cells contain. And some of these are prostaglandins, which are inflammatory substances. And some of them are cytokines, which are chemical messengers of the immune system. And we all know a lot more about cytokines than we used to because of COVID. The last paper that I looked up showed that there were 390 identified mediators in mast cells and 55 potential ones. So even though we're thinking of mast cells as doing histamine things, there are all of these other mediators that have roles in the inflammatory process and in other processes. So they're very complex, multifunctional cells. But I, I like to keep it simple. 
think about histamine as one of the primary ones because otherwise it quickly gets you know very confusing wow i love histamine histamine is fascinating it's again it's a multifunctional substance it does a lot of things in a lot of places i like to think of it as the alarm bell of the immune system so when the mast cells detect that the border has been breached they explode and they release the histamine and that histamine it's like the border guards are calling in the main army to the tissue to get them to come and get involved in the fight and so the way that histamine does that it's very clever it increases the local blood supply to the tissue so being situated close to capillaries in the tissue is important because the histamine makes the blood supply speed up in the capillaries and that means that the area gets red and hot and then the histamine also makes the walls of the capillaries more leaky and that means that other immune cells can squeeze out of the capillaries from their circulation system and into the tissue and that also some fluid comes in with the immune cells and that means that the area starts to get swollen so it's red and hot and it's swollen and then histamine also irritates nerve cells it causes nerve cells to cause more pain and the function of that is that we should then look at the place where the border has been breached and you know brush off the insect or tan into the wound Uh, and so these four things getting hot getting red getting swollen and getting painful these are known as the four cardinal signs of inflammation and these have been known about since roman times calor tumor rubor and dolor and histamine is involved in all of these it really is the alarm bell of the whole inflammatory process yeah so i can see that when working appropriately this is a great system yes Absolutely, yes. It's absolutely part of normal physiology. Acute inflammation is necessary for our natural immune response to injury and to pathogens. Yeah. Yeah. If we can't mount an immune response, we would not last very long. Right. So we can give some gratitude to the mast cells here. Yes. Yes. We love you. We love you. And then we're going to talk bad about you in a minute. But... When good mast cells go bad. (laughs) That's right. So let's talk about that. When good mast cells go bad, what happens? Mm -hmm. How do things go sideways that lead Mm -hmm. us to have some of these problems, especially related to hypermobility? When talking about mast cell disorders, it's easier to define what mast cell activation syndrome is not. It's not mastocytosis. So most doctors will recognize mastocytosis as a disease, even though it's a pretty rare disease that only happens uh, about one in 10,000 people. Mm. Mastocytosis is when you get normal mast cells, but there are too many of them. The bone marrow is Mm. churning out too many mast cells, but the mast cells themselves are normal. And that's mastocytosis. Most doctors will have learned about mastocytosis and know about it, but it's actually quite a rare disease. Mm. And mast cell activation disorder is when the number of mast cells is normal, but the mast cells themselves are hyperreactive. They're too easily triggered something has happened to put the border guards on high alert and they have become trigger happy, essentially. They release their weapons of mass destruction at the slightest provocation. 
And that uh, means that these chemical weapons and this recruitment of other immune cells happens at a way lower threshold than in people who have normal mast cells. And you mentioned that would be labeled mast cell activation disorder. Is that different from mast cell activation syndrome or are those terms used interchangeably? Those terms are generally used interchangeably. The more common one to be used these days is mast cell activation syndrome. I sometimes confusingly see mast cell activation disorders to include mastocytosis. I tend to think of mast cell activation syndrome being the kind of thing that we're usually talking about where you've got your trigger happy mast cells. And sometimes people say mast cell disease as the broader category, but I think MCAS is becoming the most well-defined and understudy. Okay, so can you describe to us what does MCAS look like? What kinds of symptoms usually appear when we have this going on? So how do you know essentially that a, that a patient or client that's walking in has MCAS, has mast cell activation syndrome? Often uh, they'll be telling a story, like they're coming in, they're telling a history, and they'll often be telling a story that starts with things happening to them in childhood, a history of skin issues, a history of mood issues, history of gut issues. Often this will be in the question, when did this start? They'll be like, oh, it's always been like this. And then there's another group of uh, clients that will say everything was fine until, and that until often involves an infection so a very common a way that MCAS is showing up these days is after people have had a COVID infection. And in fact, a proportion of people with long COVID actually have mast cell activation syndrome. And so the, there's a before and after in those clients. They seemed like they were fine before they got an infection and afterwards these mast cell activation s- symptoms showed up. Uh, it could also be someone moves into a moldy home and mast cell activation symptoms start to show up. It could also be that they had a really stressful life event and mast cell activation symptoms show up afterwards. And so one of the sort of silver linings of long COVID is that enough doctors have developed MCAS that they finally believe in it as a thing um, because they have experienced it for themselves. And when we look back in the history of people who have a before and after type event, we often start to see that even though they didn't have disabling symptoms or be seen by doctors before, that there was maybe hints that this was sort of bubbling away underneath the surface, that this mass cell sensitivity was a thing that was just waiting for an event to be the thing that set the border guards off to be trigger happy. Mm-hmm. So those are, that's the two kind of onset patterns mm-hmm. from childhood or before and after an event. Mm-hmm. And then what does it look like? Well, uh, part of the reason that it's hard to diagnose is that it's many symptoms in many systems. So this complex chronic picture um, where each patient is unique and manifests the condition differently with a variable symptom cluster, like each person will have a variable symptom cluster, which involves different kinds of reactions in different organs and looks different in different people. This is just a confusing picture to try and diagnose. But one of the things that um, people will often say about themselves is that they 
are like a canary in a coal mine. They have a sensitive system, overly sensitive system, and that multiple things will set off their symptoms. So the mast cells get triggered in an MCAS person at a much lower threshold than in a person who has more stable mast cells. And this means two things, that their mast cells are more stable to the normal type of mast cell triggers that everybody gets triggered by, so pollen and things like that. So an MCAS person will often have really bad seasonal allergies or allergies that extend throughout the year. An MCAS person will often have a big long list of foods that they are sensitive to. Uh, you know, they can't do dairy, they can't do wheat, and they've often been on a lot of different elimination diets to try to understand what it is that they are reacting to. Um, and then they're also prone to more unusual things triggering their mast cells. So that could be things like weather. So MCAS people will often have their symptoms triggered by excessive heat or cold or by sudden changes to temperature, by things like barometric pressure drop, changes in the weather, a big storm coming in. They'll be triggered by smells uh, at a much lower threshold than other people. So perfumes, odors from building materials, carpets, that kind of thing. They'll be very sensitive to those drugs. They'll often have unusual or paradoxical reactions to drugs or, or supplements. Quite often they'll have supplement reactions. Sometimes you'll see them, they'll have taken a probiotic because they think they should take a probiotic for their stomach and that's made things even worse. And stress, they'll be quite stress sensitive and they'll get flares of symptoms that will coincide with stress or travel. And then some of the oddest ones are being triggerable by friction, by mechanical means. Mm -hmm. So friction, often people will get hives maybe along the line of their bra strap or sometimes if they dip their hand into cold water. So they'll have extra sensitivity to normal mast cell triggers and then they'll also often show these unusual triggers as well. Mm -hmm. So things that don't normally <clears throat> set off mast cells in a optimally functioning immune system will do yep. so in this person. Yep. I have seen that like contact urticaria type of yep. response to compression, yep. especially with some of the self-massage techniques. And it can show up as dermatographia, right? Where the pe people can like write their name on their skin with their nail and it will come up as a big, big welt. So another common one. So they have this easy triggerability and then the symptoms often show up in the skins. So again, in the skin itself, and then in these organs that face the environment. So the skins of the respiratory system, including the nasal passage, the sinuses, all the way down into the lungs, and then the hollow organs of the gut and the bladder and the uterus. And so in each of these different organ systems where histamine is involved, that we can see the symptoms sort of as what histamine is doing in these different organ systems, which is saying, get it out of me, right? So a symptom in a particular organ will be histamine's way of trying to remove that allergen, pathogen stuff that shouldn't be inside and get it into the outside. So in the skin, it looks like flushing, itching, redness, inflammatory skin conditions, trying to get us to you know, itch so that we brush off the thing that's causing the irritation. In the respiratory tract, it will look like sneezing, congestion, runny nose, 
wheezing, coughing, and itching, itchy nose, itchy throat, itchy ears even. In the gut, in the top end of the gut, histamine response is trying to get things up and out of the stomach. So it will look like nausea, vomiting, reflux, that kind of thing. And then once it gets down to the bottom, it looks like diarrhea because histamine's response in the lower gut is, <laughs> we call it weep and sweep, basically mm -hmm. to draw moisture into the gut to flush it out. So often they'll have diarrhea and that may be combined with abdominal pain and bloating. Oh, and then in the bladder, they can have ir irritable bladder and frequent urinary tract type infections, but which often aren't culture negative. There's no bacteria that can be located. So these people may have interstitial cystitis type diagnoses. And then in the uterus, they'll often have heavy menstrual bleeding with a lot of pain, and they may even have endometriosis type diagnoses. So those are some of the organ effects of histamine in these different organ systems. And then it also has some systemic effects. So as a cause of swelling, it can cause edema in the body. So often people will have these fluid bags under their eyes. And in the worst case scenario, it can lead to actual throat swelling. So like an anaphylaxis type reaction in the cardiovascular system, it will cause the heart rate to go up and the blood pressure to go down. It causes dizziness and fainting and is related to dysautonomia POTS for that reason. Um, neurologically, it can cause headaches and brain fog. And then pain. Histamine makes nerve cells more reactive uh, to cause more sensation of pain. Um, and then mood issues. So often people will be anxious and not able to sleep. And that makes sense because histamine is an alert chemical. It's a chemical, you know, wake up, pay attention, get rid of the thing that's trying to attack me. So it's involved in the normal sleep-wake cycle. Histamine is sometimes called wakamine. Mm. We take antihistamines sometimes to block the histamine receptor so that we can go to sleep. And anyone who's ever taking Benadryl and antihistamine will tell you that that will put you to sleep. Mm -hmm. So in the central nervous system in the brain, histamine is a wake-up neurotransmitter. And that can mean that when you're under the influence of histamine, you are anxious and you can't sleep. And often that not sleeping happens in the middle of the night because the liver is involved in a, something called the histamine dump. So when you've got a lot of this stuff going on, a lot of histamine, suddenly in the middle of the night, you wake up staring at the ceiling, looking at where the bad thing, where the bad mm -hmm. thing is and hard, hard to get back to sleep. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the organ and systemic symptoms that people can have a constellation of. They can have a constellation of any or many of these things. Right. And that's what makes this so difficult to identify, I'm sure. Yes. I think a lot of people when they're thinking, how would I identify a mast cell activation problem? We're thinking hives, anaphylaxis, these very obvious jump out at you signs and symptoms, but mm -hmm. maybe not so much the bloating, the, the puffy eyes, and the GI issues. Yep. Now, and whenever I hear you talk about this, of course, it makes a lot of sense for my experience, but I, I'm kind of low on the itchy, I'm bigger on the bendy and dizzy, you know, as right. far as that trifecta goes, but yep. I definitely can see some of these mast cell issues in my own experience, but they would be more under the radar type symptoms yep. and that's probably yep. the case for a lot of listeners uh, maybe yes connecting some dots and 
like you said, we won't all have the same cluster of symptoms that point in the direction of mast cell dysregulation. Yes. But once you suspect it, you can start to join some dots. And if you pull on that thread in your client interview, they will often go, oh, yes, I often feel you know sick in the morning, don't want to eat any breakfast. So it won't have appeared to them necessarily as a symptom that they're presenting with. But when you start to investigate, you can start to kind of find that that it may be showing up. And as you say, all three of corners of the bendy, itchy, dizzy trifecta, they're all kind of spectrum conditions as well, which mm-hmm. means different things presenting at different levels. So it's, it adds to the confusion of the picture. Mm-hmm. So Lisa, can you now describe to us how is MCAS actually diagnosed? In a word, poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Often people have many years of unexplained illness during which they've seen many doctors and they may have a list of diagnoses but they often don't respond well to the standard treatments for those diagnoses and they often have left doctors confused and doctors don't like being confused. Doctors like to know what's going on And it's especially confusing when you combine MCAS with EDS, hypermobility, and also dysautonomia POTS. The doctors just, in the worst case scenario, blame the patient for their confusion. It's like, how can you possibly have all of these things going on? And so patients may have received kind of trash psych diagnoses of like hypochondria, somatizing, it's all in your head, that kind of thing. Go away and take some antidepressants. And they will have experienced, in the worst case, uh, medical gaslighting. And, And that's often just because the doctors don't know what's going on, but they're unused to saying that. They don't want to say that they don't know. To be fair to the doctors, the medical system tends to silo them into specialisms in which they understand the role of mast cells or the role of histamine in their particular silo, their specialism, but they don't really understand how it shows up in other specialisms. And because we're talking about uh, things that act systemically, mast cells, histamine acting systemically, many organs, many symptoms, um, they don't necessarily have that big picture view of what's going on in the whole person. So they may be good at like looking at the headaches component, but they're not necessarily going to know about the gut issue or the mood stuff. And mm-hmm. also, again, to be fair, MCAS hasn't been understood until recently. The first diagnostic criteria weren't actually published until 2010. Mm-hmm. And Lawrence Afrin's book, um, which is like the seminal text in the area, Never Bet Against Occam, didn't come out until 2016. So MCAS hasn't really made its way into medical education yet in time for doctors to come out of their education and go into practice. So the doctors are just catching up. We can't really blame them for not knowing about MCAS. But that's why we're here, because we have this, these abilities to look at people um, uh, holistically from a systems perspective. So the way that it's diagnosed formally is that there are three criteria. One is the laboratory evidence for mast cell mediator release. 
And that's uh, when the, you look in the bloodstream, you can look for elevated tryptase. That's another mast cell mediator, histamine, prostaglandins. But this is problematic because tryptase is actually elevated mostly in mastocytosis, but not in MCAS. And if you measure an MCAS person's histamine when they're not in a flare, it may be normal. So you have to then measure people at a normal baseline and in a flare to see what the difference between those two measurements is sometimes in order to make a diagnosis. And then the things like histamine, they come and go very quickly. They're hard to preserve. So the testing you know, functionality, the mechanism of the testing is also really difficult. So the biomarker, it would be nice to be able to run a test and say, yes, you have MCAS, but the biomarkers are actually the least useful part of the process. The second criteria is that your symptoms should respond to drugs that affect mast cell mediators. So typically this will be a trial of antihistamines for your MCAS symptoms. So people will often be told, go away and take some Allegra and some Pepsid AC and see whether your symptoms go away. And if they do, that means they're related to histamine and therefore probably related to mast cells. And then actually the most useful diagnostic is looking at the clinical picture, getting a really good history of the person, talking about their symptoms, spending time with them and seeing um, what their triggers are, and then putting these pieces together into a clinical um, picture that you know looks like a mast cell activation syndrome person. And there are some great symptom questionnaires that you can use for this, you can uh, give the person the symptom questionnaire. Do you experience gut symptoms when you eat aged cheeses? Or do you suffer from seasonal allergies? There's a, a bunch of different questions. And when you put those all together, and if you have any testing, you can add that in. And the overall will point then towards the person having MCAS. The clinical diagnosis is probably the most useful one. Great. Thanks for that description. What do you think links MCAS to this trifecta of bendiness and dizziness? Why are so many people with hypermobility syndromes impacted by MCAS? Well, we don't fully know. (laughs) What we do know is that they Mm co-occur. And bendiness and itchiness often appear in the same bodies. And there was a study of around 40,000 patients, which showed that one in three people diagnosed with MCAS uh, qualified for a diagnosis of hypermobile EDS. So we know that Bendy and Itchy are showing up together. And so when we, when a Bendy person walks in, we should look for their itchy symptoms. Mm-hmm. And Sharon McLathery's RCCX theory is one theory that we have as to why that might be. So she was a psychiatrist who knew she was bendy and who developed MCAS and POTS after a severe illness. And then she had the experience that many, especially women have, of trying to get a diagnosis for all of these disparate um, symptoms and finding that her colleagues were not able to help her. So she did the deep dive into why this was happening in her and she came up with what's called the RCCX theory. And we'll definitely get into this on another podcast, but it is that there is a cluster of genes on chromosome six. There are four genes on chromosome six and they all are inherited together. So genes 
often are inherited separately so we can pin different things on a particular gene when we look at the inheritance of it but here these four genes cluster together kind of like a super gene and they are inherited together as a block and these are genes that are involved in the stress response giving an extreme response to stress through the through stress chemistry in the immune response a hyper immune response uh, in brain development they also affect hormone levels so sex hormone levels as well as stress hormone levels they're involved in salt and fluid balance which gives a reason why they're involved in the dizzy part, the POTS part. And one of the genes is involved in the maintenance of the extracellular matrix, so the collagen, the collagen matrix. Mm -hmm. So the reason that these are seen together may be because these genes move around together and sort of act like one mega gene in a mm -hmm. cluster. That's one theory. And I imagine that with all the exciting research going on currently, We'll hopefully see a much more clear picture of what's going yep. on with these co-occurring conditions. Yep. yep. And we may yeah. find that there are several different things going on mm -hmm. um, because the, that the genetic reason that we see them together, there are some other reasons that we see them together that are to do with the properties of mast cells themselves. The fact that the location of mast cells is in the connective tissue. So the mast cells are in the connective tissue hypermobility, EDS, affects the connective tissue. So it's kind of easy to see how the MCAS might affect the, the EDS and the EDS might affect the MCAS. Mm -hmm. Mast cells, they kind of sense the proteins in the connective tissue. They're, they're tapped in, they're sensing the proteins in the connective tissue. And this interaction between the proteins in the connective tissue and the mast cells can be one of the things that triggers them to release their, their mediators. Mm -hmm. And so it's thought that maybe the softness, the wobbliness of the collagen in people with hypermobility EDS can be a trigger, a mechanical trigger. The wobbly connective tissue can trigger the mast cells who are already twitchy and trigger happy to mm -hmm. release. Mm -hmm. And then that's a double jeopardy because one of the things that mast cells do in connective tissue is to help remodel it. They break it down so that it can be built back up again. And this is again, part of a normal tissue process. All tissue is continually being broken down and built back up again. And the mast cells are on the breaking down side of that equation, while the fibroblasts are on the building up side of that equation. So you can imagine that if the connective tissue is already dense. If the fibroblasts are already not doing their job well enough, the wobbly connective tissue sets off the uh, mast cells and the mast cells then, their weapons destroy the connective tissue. So there's a bit of a downward spiral there. Mm -hmm. Wobbly connective tissue setting off the mast cells, mast cells destroying the connective tissue and making it more wobbly. So that's one reason we might see them. And they, they also occur near nerves and so they can be involved in the um, chronic pain situation uh, that often happens in people with hypermobility. And they're also located near blood vessels. They can make the blood vessels leaky. And when fluid leaks out of the blood vessels into the tissues, it's no longer in the circulatory system. It can no longer contribute to the maintenance of blood pressure. Blood pressure can drop, heart rate can go up, and therefore you've got POTS essentially. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the ways that 
the function and location of mast cells can mean that if you have uh, less dense connective tissue, they can be a threat multiplier. This is really, really interesting. I want to ask one more question to clear up a confusion in my mind, because I hear the term histamine intolerance a lot. Mm -hmm. What is that? And is that different from MCAS? Histamine intolerance means an imbalance between the amount of histamine going into the system and the ability of the system to deal with that histamine. So I love the analogy of the histamine bucket. You've got a bucket worth of histamine that you can deal with because of the enzymes that break it down. And if you can't break down the histamine that you produce or come across, then you're going to get histamine symptoms. So things that can put histamine in your histamine bucket include mast cells releasing histamine. Mm -hmm. So histamine intolerance can be worsened in people that have MCAS. MCAS is a contributor to histamine intolerance because it puts more histamine in your histamine bucket that you have to deal with. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest way I can think of. They're not the same thing, but Mm -mm. someone who has MCAS is probably more likely to have histamine intolerance. Yes, someone who Mm -hmm. has MCAS better be very good at breaking down histamine and not filling up their histamine bucket with other things. I like to take people through an exercise of what's filling your bucket, what's including MCAS, including stress, including foods, including exposure to pollen, pet dander, that kind of thing. What's in your histamine bucket? Are you eating high histamine foods? Mm -hmm. And then also to think about how good is your way of getting rid of histamine. And if someone has 23andMe, data, we can actually look to see whether they have slow or fast metabolism of histamine by looking at the genetics of the enzymes that that break it down. So I often walk people through a process of looking at how are you filling the bucket and how are you emptying the bucket and then do something about don't fill the bucket and make sure that you're emptying it uh, efficiently. And MCAS is definitely one of the things that we think about as being a filler of the histamine bucket. So last question for today, are there some broad brushstrokes you can make as to if someone suspects they may have something like MCAS, how can they begin to empty their bucket better or stop filling their bucket? What are some, some lifestyle approaches that might be helpful for a lot of people with these conditions? Well, when I'm supporting people with histamine and MCAS stuff, often the first thing is to support them, you know, to actually say, hey, this is a real thing. Let me help you understand this is not just a series of unfortunate events going on in your body. There's reason to it. So understanding what's going on can can help them not panic so much about it. And they can start to steer with that understanding away from things that make it worse and towards things that make it better. So just understanding what's going on helps the steering. And then the first thing is often looking at the four pillars of homeostasis, of balance in the body. And those are nutrition, looking at what foods they're eating. Are they eating inflammatory foods? Are they eating high histamine foods? Making sure they're getting enough of the right kind of movement, which is really important. Movement can help increase the body's ability to detoxify, to break down uh, things, including histamine. 
And then a lot of it is about nervous system balance because stress is a really big pro-inflammatory mast cell trigger. Mm -hmm. So we often talk a lot about all the ways to manage stress. Avoid the stress that you can avoid. Manage the stress that you can't avoid. And then learn some relaxation practices. Go to people that will give you massage, acupuncture, go to a yoga class, but also learn some techniques that will help you to increase the activity of your vagus nerve, you know, meditation, chanting, whatever that looks like for you, finding moments of Zen throughout your day so that you're not just caught on the hamster wheel of stress all the time. Finding connection to a tribe, finding connection to purpose, all of these things that settle the nervous system are gonna take out the nervous system dysregulation as a trigger for MCAS. And then uh, getting your sleep sorted out. It, lack of sleep is pro-inflammatory. People with MCAS often have problems with sleep. So we, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but we want to work on, on those four pillars, on nutrition, on movement, on uh, stress management, and on sleep. And then once we have those four pillars in place, we can start to then stack actual supplement regimens on top of those and hope that they have some ability to work. If we just pour a load of supplements on top of someone that's not already balancing those pillars, they're just going to slide off that platform. So we often put the pillars in place first, and then we start to talk about identifying the triggers and avoiding them, like know your triggers and get away from them if you can, and then putting a supplement plan in place that's going to help stabilize the mast cells. So the mast cells are trigger happy, they're letting go of their cargo too easily. There are certain nutritional substances that can stabilize the mast cells, calm them down, and make them less trigger happy. And the two probably most well-known ones of those are vitamin C and quercetin. Quercetin mm -hmm. vitamin C is often the basis of a nutritional mast cell stabilization plan. And there are other substances that can be added on top of that um, that are less well-known, luteolin, rutin, things like curcumin, resveratrol, bromelain, and then herbs that have traditionally been used for allergy type things like nettle, feverfew, butterbur, all of these things can, make, can build you a stack mm -hmm. that helps to stabilize your mast cells and prevent histamine release. And then if you need extra help in breaking down histamine, we can give you the gut enzyme that breaks down histamine as a supplement. That's called DAO. Often if people have GI histamine mast cell symptoms, DAO is very helpful. And we can make sure that the other enzymes that are emptying your histamine bucket have everything that they need to work efficiently. And that's a bunch of B vitamins and minerals that they need. Um, and then sometimes people need a little extra help or occasional help when they're flaring and they uh, use uh, over-the-counter antihistamine medications uh, such as Allegra which is an H1 blocker or Pepsid AC which is an H2 blocker so we offer them support we support the four pillars and then we stack some supplements on top of that that tends to work really well great valuable information that you're sharing thank you so much we will definitely have a follow-up to this episode where we can talk a little bit more about MCAS and how it interacts with some of the other trifecta pieces. I think we can flesh that out a little bit more maybe sure. at another time. And because this is just so much to take in. It's so complex. And I love how you are able to explain it in a pretty darn user-friendly way. So thank you so much 
for being here and for sharing all of this with us. Really appreciate it. Now, can you give listeners any last words or ways they might find out more about you and your work? Uh, Yeah, so I'm an acupuncturist. You'll find me at acupuncturavl.com. I'm in Asheville. And I do have ability to do some functional nutrition type Zoom sessions for people that aren't local, which this type of work tends to be um, in that rather than in my original acupuncture sort of realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would I say to people? Uh, don't panic. <laughs> it's not just a series of unfortunate events. And when we go down the rabbit holes together, we can work out what's going on and we can come up out of the rabbit holes with some easy experiments to run that are going to tell us whether MCAS is what you're dealing with and therefore uh, come up with a strategy for dealing with it. Good. So a message of hope to finish us off here. There are people who do understand this and more and more people studying this and getting their heads around it. And excuse me, that's all going to translate to more support for the people affected by these conditions. Yes. Lisa, thanks okay. so much. And right. listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.